This morning we are starting a brand new series called Multiply Life Groups. Um, it's going to be a three-week series, this week and the next two weeks. Um, why are we doing that, I hear you ask. Um, never mind. Um, small groups have always been part of this church. Life groups have always been part of this church. They're part of our DNA. And they're very different to our gathered services. Um, we, we tend to think of church as this place. Um, but actually, small groups, life groups are where we can really know people and be known. It's where real relationships, it's where discipleship and development and pastoral care really happens. If you like, it's kind of the front line of church life. And this was, um, I think we, we, you may know this already, um, but this was particularly important, I think, during the pandemic. I don't know if you remember back then. I know we don't really want to think about that time. But that was the point where we couldn't meet like this. And in fact, the connections that we had online um, through the small groups that we were already part of and that people joined became absolutely essential in terms of places of connection. And so, and, you know, another, another story for me, um, a small group, a life group, it was, had a funny, uh, it, was, it was just a house group when I was growing up in a Baptist church. Um, but the house group was where I was formed as a believer. It was where I spent time with people who invested in me as a teenager, as it happens. I remember this guy. Now, I, I was always into a bit of music, and, um, and, and there's a wonderful man, he's not alive anymore, who invested in me uh, for a long time. His name was Michael Flowers. And um, he used to lead worship in the life group. He used to play the guitar, and I would play the piano, um, in, just in the corner of the room. And I remember one time he said the most encouraging thing to me. He said, listen, when you play the piano, people cry. Okay, people, people cry when you play the piano. And he said, no, I don't mean like that. I mean because God's presence is, is, is there. And I'll never forget that. Um, it was a place where I was encouraged. It was a place where I learned to lead others. Small group was where I grew as a worship leader, where I made tons of mistakes. It's where real life happens. And small groups, life groups, we call them, have always been part of our church. But honestly, we haven't really talked about them very much in the last couple of years. I suppose since coming out of the pandemic, we've had a lot of other things to focus on. But the stats, uh, or the stats when I looked uh, from July in our, on our database say that there are roughly about 260 adults who consider themselves to be part of this church. Roughly that number of, of, of grown-ups, a whole number of kids and youth as well, but that's separate. But we've got 260 adults on our database. And of that, about 170 of those people are either involved in a life group or on a serving team on a Sunday, right? Um, and the truth is that even if someone is involved in a life group, we don't know whether they go or not. We don't keep that kind of record. We don't, we don't tick everybody off like on a register. Um, but we know that many people are involved in life group. Anecdotally, I know lots of people who are part of a life group. I know some people who are kind of attached to a life group, but if they're honest, don't really go that regularly. And I know others who don't go at all for various reasons. Now, this, this is not about guilt or blame or pointing the finger or judging anybody. That's not what we're here for. Um, life has changed a lot in the last few years, and it's got more complex for many people since the pandemic. And so I'm not here to sort of wag a finger or tell you you should or shouldn't do something, but we do want to explore why and how life groups work in this church. And so if you have been part of a small group, either in this church or in another church or in a previous iteration, I'd love you just to turn to your neighbor and tell them one of the best things that you appreciated about a small group that you were in one time. What was great about that small group? Just turn to your neighbor and have a chat for a minute and tell them what was great about that.
Okay. And now I want you to tell them, I've got one more question for you. And the question is, if you are not part of a small group or if you have found any parts of being in a small group challenging or hard, tell, me one of, tell your neighbour one of those things. What is, what is challenging or difficult about small groups or what is it that might stop someone from engaging in a small group? Just turn to your neighbour and, and tell them that as well, in your opinion. Okay, and if you want to begin to turn your attention back towards the front. Um, apologies to the introverts for making you talk to somebody in the church. Hopefully, I, I haven't got time. I, I would love to hear some feedback. I don't have the ability. I was thinking this morning you can get these very funky, techy things where people write on their phones and it comes up on here, but I'm not geared up for that this morning. So I'm just going to guess some of the things that you said. Um, what I know is great about life groups are friendships and belonging and mutual support and uh, encouragement and the opportunity to grow and learn and learn new skills and to, to do something locally that impacts the community locally. Those are, for my mind, some of the things. There are challenges around small groups too. One of the challenges is, is being in, is, is just, let's just be honest, tricky people difficult people, awkward people, or a lack of... Another th challenge, I think, around life groups is a lack of commitment. People who just don't really... or are not able to really get fully engaged. Um, another possible challenge around life groups is a small group that just kind of becomes very insular and inward-focused and doesn't really reach out and welcome new people. Um, maybe if you haven't made it to life group at all, some of the things that have stopped you are a lack of time or perhaps you just feel very shy or a fear of kind of disclosure and telling people how it really is for you. Um, all of these things are true and they're all in our experience. Um, for, the, for the rest of this morning, I want us to get a little bit, just a little bit non-English, bit African, bit Pentecostal, because I came up with a slogan for this morning's talk and it's this. The slogan is, we do not go to church, we are the church. So we're just going to try this in a little bit of call and response. Now I know you're all very English and this isn't kind of what we do, but what I'd love you to do is I'm going to say, so we don't go to church. Oh, brilliant. You guys are better than I expected. Fantastic. Just keep an eye on that because a few times in this talk, I'm going to say that because actually quintessentially, this is what we're talking about. We don't go to church, but... Okay, have a, let's have a look at a chapter, a little section from Acts chapter 2, 42. This is a description of the community life that went on among the first, kind of the first church, basically, the early believers. This is not long after Pentecost. This is when um, there's been a, an explosion in church life and church growth around Jerusalem. And it just describes, this beautiful, just four or five verses, and very succinctly describes what was going on. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's a beautiful description and there's so much in there. 
Um, so many things going on. But I just particularly highlighted that verse in chapter 246. It says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts, which was the cultural norm for Jewish people then, to practice, to practice public worship in the temple. That was what they did. Um, and it says they also broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So it's almost like there was the public part of church and there was the private or the the home part of church, the quieter part of church. And that was in the immediate aftermath of Pentecost. But the truth is that it didn't last long like that because the Christians in Jerusalem were, were scattered because they were persecuted. And so actually meeting together publicly in the temple courts became very difficult. And by the time we get to Paul's letters and Paul is writing to churches, the churches are not meeting in public. They're meeting in people's homes. Now, large church and small church both have their place. I think that's true. But we, I think we have to be careful because it's so easy for us, particularly with our Western cultural mindset, to get into the idea that church is this is when we gather in the big in the big group for a service. Now, I love this, don't get me wrong, no criticism, but our language doesn't help, does it? Are you going to church? What's happening at church? Who's going to be at church? What did you do at church? We refer to church as this Sunday service. And in our culture, most of the conversation around church and churches tends to be focused around this larger gathering. And if I'm honest, um, out there in the media, it tends to be focused around the people who are up the front as well, which is a real shame. Big churches tend to have the ability to produce a lot of media content that goes out on the internet and goes way beyond the congregation that's part of that church and gets them a lot of attention. Worship, great worship, great teaching. It's usually really good. It's usually worth a watch. But there is a danger in that. And the danger is that our focus on church goes on to the big churches and the big production and the well-known and highly gifted leaders. And of course, that's where the media tends to focus as well, And so any story that you hear about church tends to involve a larger church and a larger church leader, and then it becomes this huge story when things go wrong. You don't need me to rehearse some of the the recent media stuff that's gone on there. It's a tragedy. But even if things don't go wrong, even if it's healthy, I do wonder sometimes if this focus on big church, this focus on the mega church, the, the, the out there stuff, can kind of have the effect of making us dissatisfied with what we have with the church that we're part of, with the leaders that God has given us, the people that God has put us with, and the impact that we're having locally. And whilst the media would suggest that Western churches about mega churches and mega gifted leaders, the reality is very different. The reality in our society is that there are hundreds and thousands of smaller, quieter, faithful, fruitful, humble churches just getting on with the business of worshipping and growing and impacting their communities. And they tend not to get noticed. They tend to be out of the spotlight. And we don't really get to hear about them. But the truth is that's what church is about. Because remember what I said, we do not go to church Oh, you're getting into it. I'm so happy. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a buzz when we gather in a room like this. Certainly for people like me, if you're an extrovert and you like people, you like to be around a bunch of people. That's great. There's no no problem with that. There's an energy. There's a sense of momentum. Faith builds and expectation builds and grows and lifts as we worship together, just like we have done this morning. 
When we get together, we have the resources, we pool our resources, and we can run fantastic groups for our children and young people and help them and look at them. They're all out there now, hanging out and making a noise. I love it when they make a noise. Reminds me of home. Um, by contrast, small groups can often seem a little bit ordinary, quite mundane, a bit run-of-the-mill, and quite down-to-earth. And just to use, use a word that you might not appreciate, they just don't seem very sexy, do they? Okay? And yet, small groups and the kind of relationships and the kind of community that they can facilitate have always been fundamental to Christian growth and church life. And in fact, the truth is that small groups is how church started. Church started with small groups. This church started with small groups. The vineyard movement started with small groups. The New Testament church started with small groups. Small groups are how church started. Now, I want to do three things this morning very briefly. This is an introduction to the series. I want to just remind us for a minute about the multiply theme that we've been looking at all year because this series is called Multiply Small Groups. It's not just called About Small Groups. Okay, so I want to remind us of that. Um, I want to look briefly at why, where we find small groups in the Bible and why it is that they're important to us. And then I want to just take a little bit of time to talk about leaders and small group leaders and how we get there. And that will kind of introduce this um, series for the rest of the year. So a quick reminder about why it is that we are using the word multiply throughout pretty much every sermon series that we've been doing this year. Last year, we felt like God told us that our word for the year was renew. It was about renewal. This year, when we prayed and we asked God, what is it that you want to say? What is it that you want to do? What are you doing in the life of our church? We felt as if the Lord said multiply, multiplication and growth. Why? Because multiplication and growth is part of our original design as humans. It's part of our DNA as humans. It's part of our DNA as a church. It's part of the DNA of Winchester Vineyard. Multiplication is a principle that we find throughout the whole of the Bible. Now, I don't have time to share that now, but I did on the 29th of January this year. So if you weren't here then, or you missed that talk, or you'd like a reminder, go onto YouTube and have a look. End of January, multiplication. All of, the, all of the sort of taking through the whole Bible about where we find multiplication. Multiplication is important to God. And another way of describing that is to use the word fruitfulness. Jesus said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. When Jesus looks out at his church and he looks at his followers, he is looking for certain qualities. Now he's looking for faithfulness. He's looking for people who will stick with it, but he's also looking for fruitfulness. What do I mean by fruitfulness? I mean producing healthy growth. We're called to be fruitful as followers of Jesus. We can expect that if we have the Holy Spirit coming in, the stuff coming out is good and healthy. What does that look like? For me, fruitfulness as a disciple of Jesus looks like three things. It looks like being with Jesus. It looks like becoming like Jesus. And it looks like doing the things Jesus did. That's true for me as an individual. And it's also true for us as a, as, a, as a group of people who are looking to follow Jesus together. So as an individual, it means pursuing deeper connections with Jesus. It means I'm intentionally spending time with him, responding to his invitation, knowing and loving him. It means that I'm becoming like him, that my character is growing and changing, that I'm maturing. It, it might mean that I'm experiencing a degree of transformation, of healing. 
Hopefully it means that I'm demonstrating in my life the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which um, Paul says is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. In short, I'm just becoming a nicer person. I'm becoming a nicer person to be around. I'm becoming a kinder person and a more gentle person and a less stressy person. And if Jesus is in my life, then that's what should be coming out. And I'm also doing what Jesus did. It doesn't just stop there, but I'm impacting the world around me and I'm looking for opportunities to share Jesus with those who I've come into terms with, those who, to, to be a good influence in the place where I am and to invite people to the same thing. Now, that's true for me as an individual and it's true for us as a church. If we're being fruitful, then together we are being with Jesus like this. This is what we're doing here. We're experiencing his presence. Together we are becoming like him, supporting one another as we grow in faith and in character I've heard some incredible stories from the Changes That Heal courses that have been running over the last year or two. I've heard about people who are really struggling with stuff in their lives and yet have been able to be part of a group that has supported one another to really grow and change. I just want to say this to you. If you know that you've got stuff to deal with, this is a great place to deal with it. The body of Christ, the community of believers, is a wonderful place to come as you are, meet with Jesus and support one another as we go to grow together, as we walk in reality and hope. And together we're doing what Jesus did. We're making a difference in the world. We're growing in his gifts. We are scattered servants, trusted rulers who carry the presence of God so that everywhere where we scatter from today, maybe tomorrow, wherever you are, be it a workplace, be it a community, be it a family, be it a school or a college or a university or a playground or even the hairdressers. I heard a story about someone telling their hairdresser about Jesus. All of those places should be different because we're there. That's what fruitfulness looks like. And we are looking to multiply fruitfulness in our lives and in the church. Remember... We don't go to church. church. Oh, you guys are getting it. That's great. And so our Multiply series has covered a lot of topics so far. But it's mostly been around faith and around character. We've talked about resilience and generosity. We've talked about surrender. And then we've talked about faith and we've talked about the kingdom of God. These are character and heart issues and biblical understandings. And the feedback I've heard from many of the small group leaders is the Kingdom of God series was so good. It was so, for some people, so revolutionary, such a great reminder of what we're about and why we're here that it feels like we're just starting on that. And so basically for the rest of the year, we're going to work out how, what, how to work that out practically. That's what we're doing, and that's why we're looking at life groups. So thinking about life groups for a minute and thinking about small groups in the Bible, as I said, we don't normally think about home and church as the same place. We think about them as separate places. You know, our cultural lens for church looks like gathering on a Sunday and then going back to our separate homes afterwards. And maybe from time to time, we might have lunch with some friends or we might gather a couple of people around us. So we kind of come together and then we go and we scatter. The Bible's culture for church, the Bible's cultural lens is very different. And it's effectively, it's the, all the stuff that we're reading when we read our Bible, it starts and ends in meeting in people's homes. And I've got four ideas to share with you about this. And one of them is about house churches. Here are three quotes from different letters that Paul wrote to the believers 
Uh, one was in Corinthians, one was to the believers in Colossians, and one to um, one of his leaders called Philemon. And in each circumstance, Paul is sending greetings, and he says, Aquila and Priscilla, greet you warmly in the Lord, he says to the Corinthians, and so does the church that meets at their house. Same with Nympha in Laodicea, same with Philemon, the church in your house. The church was the church that met in their house. And the word that the, we translate as church in the New Testament, the Greek word is ecclesia. It's a word with Greek origins. We, you, you'll recognize the word. We get the word, we get the ecclesiastical. We get that's where it comes from. But actually, this word ecclesia is, doesn't have religious origins or connotations to start with. It just literally means called out. It means a gathering. It, means, it actually means a gathering of citizens, an assembly of people coming together. It just means a gathering. It's not specifically uh, a gathering of any particular size. It's just a gathering. And so when Paul uses this phrase, the, the gathering, he could be talking about a group of five people, or he could be talking about 20 groups of 20 people. When Paul says to the church in Rome, he's not talking about some grand building where they're all meeting in public because it didn't work like that. He's talking to a small group and then another small group and then another small group to networks of small groups. Let me give you another idea, the idea of household. Oh, I've done that. Jesus says, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So ecclesia means the gathering of God's people, be it in a small, a small group or a large group. Let's also look at this word household. There's a story in Acts where Paul and Silas are in prison and um, they, uh, there is an earthquake and they potentially can escape and they don't escape. And because they don't escape, they, they preach to the jailer who's about to commit, commit suicide because he thinks that he's messed up his job. And Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke to the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought him into the house, set a meal before them, filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The idea of one man in that family committing to God or committing to be part of the, the gathered church, the ecclesia, just doesn't wash in this culture. When the jailer was converted, all of his household are converted. That means all his children and his family and all the people who work for him as well. They all became part of the ecclesia. Another thing is about food. In Middle Eastern culture, back then, and probably still today, it would be an insult to invite someone into your home and not give them food. You can ask Paul and Katie about that from their time living in the Middle East. In the Bible, we often see Jesus stopping to eat with others. Eating together was a really big deal. To Jesus, it was a big deal because it was a chance to deepen friendships and welcome strangers and serve the poor. Church happened in people's homes. I don't have time to read you this extract, but I would highly recommend this book. It's a book called Phoebe by a theologian called Paula Gooder. It's a fantastic book. It's about Phoebe, who is mentioned in the Bible. Actually, Phoebe is the lady who Paul sends as a messenger from Corinth to Rome with the letter for the churches, which we know as Paul's letter to the Romans. 
And this is an imagined story, but it's based on what we know, what scholars know, not me, I'm not that, I'm not that clever, what scholars know about the historical and the theological accounts. Oh, guys, we've lost the... Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, it's, what, it's what we know about it. Um, it's imagined, and then there's, an index, there's a whole section at the back where she explains what, what's true and what's known and where she's kind of had to sort of fill in some gaps. But it's a brilliant story, and it reads of a fantastic account of what it's like to be in that early church in Rome. It's very earthy. It's very real. It's got nothing... It doesn't look anything like this. It looks like people meeting in each other's houses to read through the letter that Paul sent and then to argue about it. And then to love each other anyway and then to feed the poor and to look out for one another. And I'd highly recommend it. Um, Like I said, when Paul refers to church, he's he's talking about a small group in one person's home or a collection of small groups, a network of small groups meeting across the city. I'm not sure that Paul would recognize this as church. I think he'd like some of it, but I'm not sure that it would be in his experience. Okay? Remember what I said? We don't go to church, we Now, as I've said already, I'm not dissing the big the big group. Not in any way. I love the momentum that comes when we all gather together like this. But there are some things we can do better in a small group than in a large group. And over the next couple of weeks, we really want to dig into what that is. And we want to take this week and next week to just explore, and the week after, by the way, to just explore what we think that should be. And the best way that we have found to describe that is with these three words. And the words are lead, develop, care. Each of these is an essential element of a small group, of a life group. And particularly important is the balance between development and care. And that's why we're going to spend most of our time this series looking at those two words. Next week, we're going to look at developing. The week after, we're going to look at care. It's always been a challenge, actually, with small groups to get the balance right between development and care. Um, develop, one of the best things about small groups is that they have a quite an easy ability to reproduce themselves as people grow in discipleship and leadership. That's why multiplication is in our DNA as a church. This church started as one group that then replicated to two groups that then replicated to three and four groups that was then enough groups to be able to meet publicly. I've talked to people who plant churches, many of them actually. The church that I was in in Birmingham, we didn't start meeting in public on a Sunday morning regularly until there were about 60 adults in the church. So when I joined that church, there was no public meeting. We would gather occasionally on an evening, perhaps every two to three months, we would gather and just worship, and there would be perhaps 40 or 50 of us. But mostly when I joined, there were about 25 people. And uh, one of my experiences was that the pastor of the church, after about four months, came to me and said, "Um, we need to start another small group in Selly Oak. Selly Oak's a part of Birmingham. They said, we need to start another small group in Selly Oak. I said, okay. And then he said, "Um, you live in Selly Oak? I said, yes, I do. They said, we'd like to start a small group in your house. Would that be okay? I said, "Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of space. But we did. Do you know, we used to take the lounge door off its hinges in my old house so that we could squeeze enough people into the room um, to do small group. Um, and, And that's kind of what we did. So... The reason 
that multiplication is our DNA hangs a lot of it around small groups. Small groups are brilliant places for development. And yet, for many of us, we don't think about our small group as, oh, this is a place to develop, this is a place to grow, this is a place of multiplication. We think of a small group as a place where we can go and belong. And that's important. A place where we can go and be encouraged, that's important too. A place where we can be nurtured and cared for. And all of that's important, but I do wonder sometimes if we've lost our focus, if we've got those two things out of balance. And that's what we're going to look to over the next couple of weeks. But just that first word, lead. I just want to speak for about five more minutes around leadership as it relates to life groups. Now, you've heard me say this before. And there's plenty I could say about leadership. I actually have a whole series planned on leadership. I was going to do it before my operation got called and I went into hospital. It'll come later this term. Leadership in the world and leadership in the church. And so this is really just skimming the surface. But the Bible's very clear about qualifications of leaders. And there's a passage in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I've just taken the words in there and I've made a list of them. And it says... That to, to desire to be a leader or an overseer is a, is a brilliant thing. And this is the kind of people that we're looking for, that God is looking for, and that we should be looking for as we appoint leaders in the church. And then there's a list that they should be above reproach, faithful to their spouse, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. They must manage their family well not be a recent convert and have a good reputation with outsiders. In short, Superman. I'm just teasing. Paul is not looking for people who can dazzle on stage. He's not looking for people who can demonstrate physical prowess, thank goodness, or, making, or people who can make shed loads of money. All of that stuff's important, but Paul is looking for, and we are looking for, people who are people of character. Humble, mature, Honest, godly, faithful people. People who have integrity. People who say and do the same things. People who are sober. It says not given to drunkenness. They get the joy of... uh, Somebody said this. It was John Mumford who said this. They get the joy of life from Jesus, not from substances. People who are not quarrelsome. Have you noticed how many of those... Phrases in that list are based on a specific skill. How many can you see there which are about a specific skill? I can see one. Maybe, arguably, two. What's the one that you can see? Able to teach. So they do need to have some skills to be able to teach. But can you see how overwhelmingly appointing and choosing leaders is about character? This is about the character and the kind of people we are. And interestingly, the whole um, passage is bookended by this thing. The first phrase is, they need to be above reproach. And the last phrase is, they need to have a good reputation with outsiders. So in other words, there is an underlying assumption that leaders are open to scrutiny and that, that they are, it is okay for people to come and look at their lives and say either, yes, they're living up to that, or no, they're not. When you are a leader... You are opening yourself up to people questioning and asking questions and looking at your life and scrutinizing and saying, are they above reproach? Do they have a good reputation? 
You couldn't find these other things out unless you were prepared to go and ask the questions. Leaders and open books. So on that basis, and to be fair, this list is mainly talking about, um, about leaders of churches and leaders of beyond churches. But the principle is the same. And so for me, just four quick things. Life group leaders. For me, life group leaders are first and foremost disciples. They're people who've been walking with Jesus for a while and you can tell that by the way they live their lives. You can see that character in their lives. They're people who spend time with Jesus and do the things he did. They're disciples. They're not perfect or sinless, but they are people who are working on their, on their, on their relationship with God in an ongoing way. Secondly, life group leaders are role models. Paul says, you can follow me as I follow the example of Jesus. In other words, Paul says it's okay for leaders to say, you can follow my example. They're not chosen as life group leaders because they're amazing preachers or they're phenomenal teachers, although they might be. They're not chosen because they have a massive in-depth Bible knowledge and can quote you every verse, although they might be able to do that. They're chosen because they're people who have a faith worth copying, who have a life worth observing. Life group leaders are disciples, they're role models. Life group leaders are open-hearted. They are happy to share their lives and their homes and their hearts with other people. So there must, by nature, you must be easy to get along with. You must be interested in what's going on with people. And you must be hospitable and just happy to be around people. And implied in that, I think, is that life group leaders are emotionally healthy. They're dealing with their emotions, and you know where you are with them. They're not people who are, likely to, who are suddenly likely to get cross with you for no reason, or suddenly likely to fall out or whatever. You know, I mean, all of us have our moments, we know that, but they are people who are, have a degree of emotional health. And then lastly, life group leaders are facilitators. They're people who can gather others into a space. They're people who can draw out others' contribution they are not going to hog the limelight and take the conversation and always tell stories about themselves and always give their own wisdom. A life group leader, a really good one, will help someone, help people, encourage everyone to share and take initiative. They'll encourage people to look out for one another and to care for one another. Because what I'm saying here, when I say life group leaders are facilitators, they are not pastors. They may well be pastoral, but they are not group pastors. If you've got a group where there is one or two people leading that group, and everybody in that group is looking to that person for everything that they need, they're looking for care, and they're looking for oversight, and they're looking for help, and they're looking for wisdom, it's not going to be long before those leaders burn out, and that group shuts. And we don't want that. That's not what it's about. It, th those people are not the pastors for everybody in the group. They are facilitators of pastoral care, or as we used the phrase once, pastoral share. It's easy to feel that you're responsible for everybody in your group, but you're just not. You're not responsible for their spiritual health, and you don't want to burn out. This is just a very quick overview around leadership. There's plenty more to say about leadership, but when we train life group leaders, when we select or um, try and identify people who could lead life groups, these are the kind of things that we're looking for. If you are a life group leader in this church, this is why we asked you to do it.
Okay, you might be surprised at that, but that's why it is. These are some of the qualities that you are already demonstrating. If you feel that God is talking to you about leadership, then honestly, these are the kind of people we're looking for. And I think these are the kind of people that God can work with and can use as well. And so that's not everybody. Not everyone's called to this. But if you are looking to join a life group and you're wondering, oh, which group should I join? You would do worse than to ask yourself, are the leaders like that and can I get on with them? And, and who, who am I going to go and just be around? Who do I want to be led by? Who do I feel I can get on with? What kind of people are they? Are they going to welcome me into their group? Are they going to encourage me to share my heart as well? Or is it just going to be all about them and going and sitting at their feet? Now, I don't think that happens here. This isn't aimed at anybody in particular. I'm just kind of saying that to make my point. Some people choose a life group because it's this location. Okay, maybe you choose a life group because it's near you, and that's fine, that's absolutely great. Many of our life groups end up on Zoom now, or some of them do anyway. My advice is if you're looking for a life group, just find one that suits you and find somebody who you can relate with and get on well with. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to pick up uh, talking very specifically about uh, what, it, what a life group is around development, and then the following week we're going to talk about that other, about what a life group is around care. Um, and that's going to be how we dig into this series for the next two weeks. If you, uh, most of our life groups are going to be restarting, if they haven't already, at the end of September. It's our week of prayer next week, which Paul just talked about, and then most of our life groups will kick off either the week after that or the week after that. Um, they are up on the website, the ones that are there. There's a couple of new ones uh, starting, which we will add the details this week on the website too. So do, I do want to encourage you to have a look. Um, but for now, why don't we pray? So why don't you stand with me? And why don't you guys...